Operator, I have located Mr. Luna. Karen, do I want to know where he is? No, this time, I don't think you do. Play transmission. I have watched people suffer, die. There was nothing to be done. They were ill, doomed by nature. Children, adults too, but the ones that stand out most, of course, are the children. They don't seem to quite get it. Kids. It's as if they haven't had time to grasp what life even means yet. Don't get me wrong, they're scared. Nobody, especially a child, wants to die. They're terrified of it. Hell, they're just getting used to being alone in the dark. Death? You mean like everything's over? The concept is much easier for the old and the suffering to swallow. A person who has lived a full life sometimes welcomes the end. But a child? They can't even fathom it. You cannot possibly understand how cruel this life truly can be unless you love a child who is taken from you. Uh, hit by a car, diagnosed with an incurable disease, stolen by a degenerate out to feed their unconscionable need, appetite. My sons are ages eight and two. Year by year I watch as they shed versions of themselves. I mourn losing these versions of my children, but I enjoy their growth, of course. I feel relief as they become more self-sufficient, able to care for and protect themselves. My youngest had a seizure just before this trip in the crime machine to Auschwitz. A high fever threw him into a fit as he slept on me. It was the first time I've ever felt true panic. I thought his brain was becoming damaged as time ticked by. It was terrifying to see a small child in distress, my small child, and be helpless to make it better. He's fine, thankfully, but... Nothing I've experienced before compares to the helplessness, the extreme desire I felt for relief to wash over his little stiff body, for his breathing to slow, for his eyes to focus, for mercy. And as I went through the necessary tests, holding his arm for needles, restraining him for x-ray as he screamed at me to make the uncomfortable scenario stop, I thought about Joseph Mengele. And I finally understood what all the fuss was about with that whole holocaust thing. I'm being facetious, obviously, but really, until I held up my son's bony arms to expose his bony rib cage, and he looked to me in absolute misery, the whole horrible history, all the small stories I had read of the Nazis and the death camps and the end game to take over the world not only by land but through eugenics had just been fascinating to me. It had never hit home what it must have been like. I had never truly empathized. I'd seen the pictures of piles of teeth, hills of shoes, mountains of bodies, but I'd never really felt it. I was disgusted with myself. I felt unworthy of everything I have. So I read what I could and I realized there was no way, there was no way I could possibly do this story justice. Even so, I tried. With this hunk of junk crime machine, I gave it a look from a fresh angle. 
There are no words that can be written by someone who wasn't there that will be worth much. But what I found has less to do with unearthing history and more to do with staring into the abyss. The blackest one of all, perhaps. To promote suffering, to thrive on it, is perverse. Ironic that what justified the horrors we are about to visit was the belief that the victims were what the perpetrators in fact were. Subhuman. End of transmission. Welcome to Crime Machine, episode 007. Let's climb aboard, shall we? train rolls into the camp at Auschwitz and a man is there to greet it. He is dressed in a white lab coat with pants to match. His boots are black and polished to a high shine. Everything that surrounds him seems pale, worn out, dingy in comparison to his cutting figure. The guards in their military fatigues, the prisoners in their rags, the buildings entombed in a mix of frost and soot. It all seems to serve the man waiting at the station. Seems to exist only for him. Fitting, as the handsome doctor is likely the only one who is truly enjoying his time here. At his side stands a little boy, gap-toothed like the man he calls uncle. They are dressed the same in their white lab coats and anywhere else in the world, anywhere else in history. This would be adorable. But, considering where we are and who we're dealing with, it is just plain unnatural. Terrifying, even. The boy is a prisoner. The man is Joseph Mengele. The camp was originally built to house 10,000, but the war and the growing need to imprison not only enemies of the state, but put them to work, soon expanded Auschwitz into the soulless behemoth Mengele rules over today. A camp of 100,000 with absolutely no interest in the well-being of its prisoners. Its purpose now only to serve the war effort by eliminating the weak, exploiting the strong, and suffering the children as well as suffering any useful body seen as a specimen worth experimenting on for a better future and advanced Reich. The prisoners are unloaded one car at a time. Dr. Mengele wants to handpick those who will live and those who will die. Some have already made the choice for him. As the packed cars empty, those who perished on their feet during the grueling transport are squeezed out in the rush finally able to collapse when their family and friends spread out on the platform. This horror is quickly muted by all the others to come, as wives are ripped from their husbands, then children from their mothers. 
the doctor scans the sobbing and already broken masses. He searches high for the able-bodied and low for the double-bodied. Twins. Mengele and his fellow SS doctors assigned to concentration camps across Poland are living in an exciting time for medical exploration. They have been handed unlimited test subjects and been given the green light to experiment however they see fit to use those deemed subhuman for the betterment of the Aryan race. Unfortunately for those chosen as human guinea pigs, the doctors have themselves been selected for their intestinal fortitude, their cold-bloodedness, their unflinching belief that their captives are vermin and that to show them any mercy would be treasonous. They work unflinching in the face of agony and without anesthetic. Why should they bother with such formalities, costs, when restraints are available? And why should suffering be considered troublesome when it comes from the enemy? It is music in the halls of camps like Auschwitz. It is justice being served for the perceived sins of the past. It is purifying. The final solution was never meant to be pleasant. It is simple, godless, necessary. Hitler had promised that the German Jew would one day regret their laughter, owe for their dismissal of his vision. And now they pay with their lives and the screams of their children. Doctors, aides, guards, even trusted inmates begin to embrace the spirit of this damned facility and implement the practice of pure sadism. Dr. Mengele himself has a reputation for nastiness when faced with attractive women, maybe upset by his own desires for those he sees as inferior. He often handpicks the prettiest girls to be mutilated in procedures involving live transplant, tissue, bone, and organs removed from healthy specimens and swapped into another. Recovery rooms lack motivated nurses or adequate medicine. Every dollar pumped into the camp is meant to improve testing, improve security, improve slave production, with the only effort made to improve prisoner conditions being the expansion and involving efficiency of extermination facilities. Guards, completely desensitized to the suffering all around them, kill indiscriminately, devolving their methods of culling over time to unspeakable depths. Crying babies are a nuisance, and rumors circulate that the breasts of nursing mothers are hacked off as a cruel way to starve their inconsolable infants. The most mundane scenes imaginable become a canvas for a living nightmare. Freshly mopped floors are often dried by those who lick them for much sought-after moisture. Lawns are cut by the teeth of crawling chain gangs. Everywhere are the sick, many intentionally infected by Mengele and his brethren to be as such. Infected by malaria after controlled mosquito attacks. Many are oozing from wounds following exposure to mustard gas. Still others are left limbless due to extreme cold testing. Held in tanks of freezing water for hours then tossed into boiling baths. Every possible scenario the Nazi soldiers face in the field of battle is simulated upon the prisoners. The doctors search endlessly for ways to make the Reich stronger, indomitable. Those chosen for the testing facilities initially are relieved that they will live, only to realize it would be easier to have died. A sad and hopeless state of affairs when the incentive to survive is twisted into incentive to die. Suicide is a daily occurrence. Death being the only escape plan some can see. Death is everywhere here. 
Death is why the camp exists. Dr. Mengele searches for twins. They are his passion project. He's had his fill of the rest. Deep down, he knows that most of it is just recreational torture. But twins, they may be able to unlock the way to a future full of pure people. A future where camps such as Auschwitz will never again be necessary, though he'll miss the fun of all this. That is for sure. Beside him stands the child dressed exactly as himself. A mini Mengele. He is an accessory of sorts, a pet picked up by the fiendish doctor who found the boy's resemblance to himself amusing. The child is a conversation piece, something to lighten up the dreary work all about. The Nazi version of a Donald Duck tie or Minnie Mouse scrubs. Children love the doctor, refer to him as Uncle Mengele, in fact, when he comes around handing out candies. They love the boy in the doctor's coat, too. How fun. Of course, this is all a ploy, part of Mengele's twisted enjoyment. But it also serves to keep the kids amenable all the way up to his examination table. Whatever makes the day easier, more enjoyable for the doctor, he takes advantage of. The first and only real direction Dr. Mengele had received from Commandant Haas upon arriving at Auschwitz was as follows. This is not a sanatorium. There is no place for the sick. The prisoners are here to work or die. The two smoke cigarettes and meet eye to eye as they communicate a mutual understanding. Never has a place like this existed. And if done right, there will never be the need for one again. This is where a perfect future begins, with the messy work of culling the herd. Commandant Haas continues. Your task as a doctor is a particularly delicate one in this inextricable situation. Mengele, coming from privilege, cannot help but view himself as a superior to all. Even his own supposed superiors are automatically below Joseph in his mind. The message from Haas was loud and clear. He was not a part of this as a function of healing. Mengele was brought here to eradicate. There would be no room for medicine. Only hard decisions of who can work and who can't. Who will live and who will die. In time, Mengele, like the most successful Nazi commanders closest to Hitler, would pave his own path, provide his own peace to the Nazi mosaic. And that contribution lies solely in his fascination for twins and what they might mean for the future of a pure Aryan race. One that would spread across the earth, chewing up everything in its path, squeezing until humanity became one flawless diamond. And so, he got to work. Much of what Dr. Mengele decides to do with his free reign has no real medical value. When he sews some sets of twins together, back to back, meticulously connecting bloodstreams, fusing together spines, rendering the two completely doomed, and letting them loose to stumble about like a living work of macabre art, he does not seem to have any justifiable purpose for this, other than tickling his own sadistic curiosity. He tortures half the estimated 1,500 sets of twins annexed for his tables, 
the remaining twin used as a control and immediately murdered upon their sibling's death. A thin needle slipped into the heart and a heavy dose of chloroform administered, causing an already broken heart to literally do so. The autopsies are the best bit for Mengele. He searches relentlessly for some key to unlock the ability to act as God, to provide his people some magic tool to ensure they bear not only genetically superior children, but two genetically superior children with each birth. Auschwitz is a candy land for a sadistic doctor. The fun never ends. Here he pumps all the blood from one twin into its match, gorging the latter and siphoning dry the former. In the next room, he injects dye into a screaming child's eyeball and advises an aide to watch not the obviously suffering patient's reaction, but her identical sister for any changes to her eye color. Out in the yard, a man begs Mengele to allow him to go to death with his son, the two having been sent opposite direction. Mengele obliges, beating the man to the ground, then to the head with his boot, as his child is whisked away, screaming to the gas chamber. Over here, a woman scratches at an SS officer's face when he attempts to separate her from her small child. Mengele approaches and calmly shoots dead the mother and daughter. Problem solved. And the little boy in the lab coat looks on dumbly. He has seen it all before. It's not concerning. Uncle Mengele is not bad to him. He gives him candy. Smiles that gap-toothed grin the boy has seen in his own smile when standing in front of the hospital's many mirrors. Uncle Mengele has picked him special because they are somehow the same. And for everything that has happened to every other non-Nazi Mengele has interacted with, the child believes he somehow will escape this. His mother and father are a distant memory. There is nothing but the doctor and his duties. There is nothing he need do but be pleasant and cute. Make Uncle Mengele smile. The strange child watches as guards call up prisoners for headcount. Watches as the people he sometimes recognizes approach like deflated versions of themselves. Skeletons draped in loose skin. He looks on as the walking dead carry the already dead up to be accounted for. And he watches more die when they collapse. Die by the fangs of the dogs. It is also foreign. It is all probably just a dream. What else could this be? Something to the boy has changed with his Uncle Mengele. He seems deep in thought as he makes selections, though there is no thought necessary in the way he now continuously directs the prisoners from the trains off to the left and towards the glow of the great furnaces. Only on occasion now does he show that gap-toothed grin. Once, upon spotting a family of dwarves, whom he eagerly sends to the right, a fun experiment to be had with them before all this comes to an end, the boy presumes. He has overheard rumors of the war being lost, and as the camps begin to empty, the little boy in the medical coat hears Uncle Mengele making plans to flee Auschwitz. He seems frightened by something called the Russians, which are coming fast, apparently. And now he begins looking at the boy sorrowfully, like a man might to his beloved old dog. Uncle Mengele? The boy is personally escorted to the showers by the angel of death, then relieved of his little lab coat and forced to strip with the others. 
There are men, women, and children, all seemingly relieved to be here. They have just received water for the first time in days, and spirits are high. Next will come some sort of sanitization. They are headed into the showers, and the mothers begin to worry. Will the sanitization process be harmful to the little ones? The guards look through heaps of clothing and find some children hidden there. They are guided into the showers along with Uncle Mengele's former toy who takes one last desperate look around before submitting to his fate. He knows what comes next. Has seen it all before, but from the other side and under the protective shadow of Uncle. The heavy doors close and all around the child are skeletons. Skeletons screaming to the ceiling as the death gas rolls in. The boy closes his eyes and is thankful. Thankful for this strange dream to finally be done. Crime Machine is a new breed of true crime podcast researched, written, and narrated by Jack Luna and produced by me, The Operator. Subscribe to Crime Machine wherever you consume your podcasts and remember to tell everyone what you heard here today. Do you love us or wanting to hear more Crime Machine than everyone else? You can support Crime Machine on Patreon. Become a member by searching for Crime Machine on Patreon or by going to patreon.com or slash Crime Machine.